they know that he loves him. Interestingly, we don't really get to know Lazarus a great deal. You know, we haven't really encountered him very much. We encountered a different man named Lazarus in, in a bit of a parable. But here we find out that Jesus loved him. It just tells us straight out. Mary and Martha knew that Jesus loved them. Some people in this world that Jesus walked with can truly feel the love that he has for them. And this means so much to us. Put yourself in Lazarus' shoes. This means so much to us. But imagine now that Jesus was just a man and not the Son of God. What would this feeling that he has for Lazarus mean? What would this feeling of love, the fact that he even feels towards us, mean if he was just a man? In terms of friendship, if you have someone who is like this for you, it's still a really great thing. When you have community that will just sit with you, that will weep with you when you're weeping, that will laugh with you when you're laughing, that will just live with you, live your life with you, it means so much to us. It's only because this community is in a sovereign God, one who also does these things. This is the only reason why it matters to us. He's sovereign, which means he's all-powerful. He knows what he's capable of doing. And we see this in verses 11 to 13. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. I want you to look at the contrast in what Jesus says to his disciples and then what he says next. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, our friend, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life. His disciples cannot do what he's about to do. Jesus alone can do this. He's capable, he's sovereign, and he feels towards us. Our sovereign King Jesus, this is what the Bible tells us. He knows us. It tells us this in Psalm 30, uh, 103. For he knows what we're made of, remembering that we're only dust. He knows what's in us as well. John 2 reads, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He shares in our flesh and blood, and Hebrews tells us this. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. And in our focus passage for today from John 11, he's moved by compassion and love for us. His love, it's not just a little bit. It's not just a temporary love. It's not just a part-time love that he has for us. His love is great. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Now, because his love is great, he makes our pains his own. And Isaiah tells us this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. 
Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And this is our God. When we talk about love, God's love might not always make sense to us. You know, if you've lived life for you know, at least a few years, God's love might not make sense to us. There comes a certain age when we look at the world around us, when we look at the life that we're leading and the things that happen in life, and we think, this doesn't really make sense. This doesn't really line up with what I'm thinking about God's love. Because even our human loves don't always make sense. If you love someone, if you have someone that loves you, you must know this, that sometimes even our human loves don't really make sense. But what we know about God is that he's not a sinner like us, so we have to look beyond any judgments that we have against him when he might not do exactly what we hoped. We feel this way, right? We feel like God, if he loves us, he should give me this, whatever it is. Whatever it is that we've been really hoping for in life, if he really loves us, surely he would give me this. And then when he doesn't, we doubt him. And we think he doesn't love us. But surely we must see, if we're the sinners, if he isn't, his judgments might be a little bit better. In order to see his heart, sometimes we need to trust the work of his hands before we actually recognize his heart behind it. John 11, now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now this is the part that might not make sense to us. We read here, Jesus loves them. He loves all three of them. He hears that Lazarus is sick. And so he stays two more days where he is. It might not make sense for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus as well if they found out, you know, maybe they're reading the Bible someday and they see, well, he stayed two more days. <laughs> he could have come. How can it be that Jesus stayed two more days after hearing that Lazarus was sick? How can it be that this was motivated by love? This should be the question on all of our minds when we're reading this. What about the death itself? What about Lazarus dying? These people had seen Jesus perform miracles already. He's been opening the eyes of the blind man. Surely he could have prevented someone from dying. Wouldn't this be love? Wouldn't this be our definition of love? Don't we think this way? When we think someone that we know is sick, and God's not healing. We question. Jesus comes at the right time. He comes at the Kairos time as set by the Father, as appointed by the Father. He demonstrates through this that he truly is the resurrection and the life by raising Lazarus from the dead rather than just preventing him from dying. He authors a greater faith in everyone that's witnessing this, including all of us who are reading this now, than if he had just kept him from getting sick, from, if he had just kept him from dying. There's a reason behind everything that he does. Not everyone there would have fully understood what was happening, of course, and yet it was to their good that he did what he did. He loved, and so he delayed. And he loves us, and so he doesn't do just what we hope for. Now, when I'm talking about he feels in this sermon, Jesus feels more than just love. It's not the only thing that he feels, although it's his primary motivator for everything that he does. Everything he does is primarily motivated by his love for us, 
but it's not the only thing that he feels. We see this in the passage, okay? John 11, 33 and 38, read this. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And then again in verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. This is a really weird picture to have in the background of this passage, right? It's these two horses, and they're terrifying. They're, I don't know what they're doing. They're biting each other. But there's a reason. Okay, now let me get there. Okay, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. What does it mean that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled? In other words, in the Greek, what this means is Jesus was outraged and distressed. And this hits a little bit harder than just deeply moved and troubled. He was actually outraged. Something was moving inside of his heart to a degree. The Greek word that's being used here, it can be used to refer to that ferocious snorting sound that horses do sometimes when they're agitated. You can imagine that if any human being is making a noise like this, they're not unemotional. They're not feeling just, oh, everything's fine, I'm good. They're not frozen in place. They're more than just a little emotional. Jesus feels some type of way much more than what some of us might imagine him to feel. What do you think of when you see Jesus? Do you see someone who's stoic? Do you see someone who just stays back and just looks at your situation and says, oh, he'll figure it out. It's fine. I don't feel anything. Because that's not the case. He displays emotion here to a degree that we have such a strange picture in the background of this PowerPoint. Why? Why does he feel such strong outrage and distress? Jesus saw Mary crying. Jesus saw, as well, the Jews who had come with her crying. And at this time, this isn't just friends and family of the family that's coming and, and crying. At this time, the Jewish funeral custom was that there will be at least one professional crier, someone who's actually hired to weep and wail to show just how loved and missed this person who died was. This person will be present at the funeral. This is the bare minimum with a poor family, but we know that Mary and Martha's family is clearly not poor because we see this later in John 12. Mary pours out this perfume, this very expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, there's going to be at least a few pros hired in the audience to cry for Lazarus alongside Mary, Martha, and their friends. There's going to be a bunch of people there. Seeing all of them this way, Jesus becomes outraged, and he becomes distressed for a few reasons. Number one, Jesus is moved by their grief and becomes indignant because he's outraged by the sin, the sickness, the death, all of the things that cause us so much grief. He doesn't stand far off from us when we're experiencing these things. When we go through depression, when we go through the things that give us grief, when we see a family member dying, he feels these things. He's moved by what moves us. Number two, Jesus is outraged when it comes to grief that becomes despair. What we're talking about when we talk about despair, it's a grieving that looks inward. It's a grieving that acts as if there's no resurrection. That acts as though this life is all we have. 
And so we grieve and we grieve and we never stop. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's as though we think that God doesn't care. And so we just continue to weep. It's a denial of a belief in the Father God's truths. And we'd rather believe the lies that we see. It's a trusting in sin and death in in this fallen world instead. In either instance, whatever's happening, those that are grieved, those that act in unbelief, there's still those that move Jesus to feel. There's still those that God loves, even those that act in unbelief. John 11:35. Jesus wept. And so he feels. Jesus wept as a response to the grief of his loved ones and the unbelief of those very same loved ones. He cares for you. Everything you go through in life matters to him. Everything, no matter how small you think it is, even when you feel like you can't bring it to him in prayer, it matters to him. Even the things that no one else in your life understands, the things that you keep guarded inside you. And even knowing what happens in the end, Jesus stops to feel everything. There were a lot of times uh, when I was in my depression where I sat alone, where I just wept late into the night in the early morning, and I just felt so alone. I felt like no one really understood. None of my friends, my family members, but this simply isn't the case. Brothers and sisters, you need to know this. Not a single tear falls from your eyes that he doesn't catch. He sees everything and he knows and he feels all of these things. All right, so he knows all of our pain intimately and personally. What's he going to do about it? This is probably the question on our minds. He's going to feel, but this feeling doesn't just stop there. It's not just sentiment. It's not empty because he's going to work. And all of this is so that he can invite us in. Verses 41 to 42, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. We've seen this before in our sermon series thus far. Uh, The way that Jesus retreats to pray, the way that he's invited his disciples in so that they could see his habits and his way of life. We've seen this already. The prayer that he's demonstrating here to all those people around him, he's already prayed to the Father to ask for Lazarus to be raised. Isn't this amazing? His intercession begins long before we might even think to ask. It's not even recorded in Scripture. We read that he's already asked. We might not see the answer immediately, but Jesus is on the case. He's already interceding on our behalf even before we pray. We might grow weary. We might waver in our faith, but Jesus doesn't. All Jesus needs to do, he says, is thank the Father that he has heard him. Because his faith is such that he says, I know you're going to answer. This is the intimacy that Jesus has with the Father. And this is what Jesus invites us into. 
this type of intimacy. He's saying, come and listen. This isn't just a demonstration of my relationship with the Father. It's what you have access to. You're invited. The chapter ends like this. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. As Jesus feels, as he works the will of the Father, and as he invites us into this intimate relationship, Jesus puts an end to death. He goes to Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come out. He says this because if Jesus had just said, come out, without saying Lazarus, all of the tombs would have opened up and all of the dead would have come to life. That's the kind of authority that he wields. And this is our friend. This is the one who feels for us. This raising of Lazarus is more than just him, for him, or for his beloved family. It goes beyond the faith of those that are gathered there. It's a prelude to a greater resurrection that's still to come. Do you know about our resurrection? When we talk about our resurrection in the days to come, do you just have a vague idea of being raised on the last day? And that's okay if you do, because that's what Martha displays as well in verses 23 to 27. Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into this world. What Jesus does here, he takes Martha from this general idea or this general thought that she might have towards the resurrection to a true personal faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life. This is where we need to be at. We're invited into this true personal trust in Jesus, not just general ideas about our faith. He's the one who's going to awaken his friends like he did to Lazarus. He's our true friend who feels for us, who's able to lift us from our grief and our graves. Take his invitation. Take his invitation today, his invitation into the intimacy that he has with his Father. What do I pray for us? Everything that we examine throughout this series should cause us to pursue this greater intimacy with God and a greater desire to pray. You know, we see in Martha, we see that she's persuaded that her brother would have still been alive if Jesus had been there. But even then, when Jesus shows up, late in her estimation, even as she weeps, even as she grieves, we see that she still has supreme confidence in Jesus. She still recognizes this love that he enjoys with his father, this love that he has 
for her and her brother. This is the love that we need to recognize. He's inviting you into this intimacy. He's inviting you to this intimacy that he's displayed, that he shows. There's a fruitfulness to his prayers, a confidence to his prayers. And you can enjoy this kind of intimacy. Why don't you pray and ask God to help you to enter into this intimacy with him? Let's pray.